Now, friends, as we come to the fifth chapter here, we have a new subject. It's the prophecy now of the first coming of Christ. We looked in the last chapter, the prophecies of the last days. Now we have here the prophecy of the first coming of Christ, which is before, of course, the second coming and the setting up of the kingdom. Now this first verse that I want to read probably belongs to the last chapter. And in the Hebrew Bible, it is part of the last chapter. And I frankly do not know how it got over into the fifth chapter. I do not believe that it should be here. Now it reads, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now, last time, you remember, we saw that he described, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 4, the Babylonian captivity, and then he projected that right on down to the last days, that is, to the great tribulation period and the war of Armageddon. And this last verse of this section now goes back and I think is identified with the Babylonian captivity. In fact, the very end of that captivity and the reference here is not to the Lord Jesus. Actually, there are those that take that position that he's mentioned here in verse 1 that they'll smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Well, you'll find that when you read the gospel record that they smote him with their hands, and it was not a foreign power that did it, but it was his own people the night that he was arrested and taken, you will recall, to Caiaphas' judgment hall. And that's where they beat him, actually, in the face, so that this does not refer to the coming of Christ the first time when he was so mistreated. There are other passages that do refer to it, but not this. It obviously refers to the end of the Davidic kingdom at that particular time, that is, up to the Babylonian captivity. And if you should go over into the 25th chapter of Second Kings, At verse 7, you would read this, "...and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him with fetters of brass, and carried him to Babylon." Now, I think the reference is that. It's certainly applicable to him, and it denotes what looks to be the very end of the Davidic line. But Zedekiah was not in the direct line. You will recall that when they came to the very last, Jehoiakim rebelled against the king of Babylon. In fact, he stood against him at first. Then the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, took him into captivity. And then Jehoiachin was put on the throne. And actually, what happened to him, he was carried, we're told, in Second Kings, the 24th chapter, verse 15, and he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, 
and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, the Davidic line was carried into captivity, and out of that line there came both Joseph and Mary as peasants later on. But what you have here is Zedekiah, for he was an uncle of Jehoiachin, and it was Nebuchadnezzar that put him on the throne. And when he rebelled, then Nebuchadnezzar's tired of fooling with the line, and so he takes Zedekiah, slays all of his sons before his eyes, then puts out his eyes, takes him into Babylonian captivity. Now, you might assume from that 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 would be the end of the Davidic line, that the prophecies made to David and those that the prophets had spoken of again and again, that there's one coming in David's line. So you'd feel like that can't take place now. That brings us to a verse that's in contrast to all of this. Verse 2 of chapter 5 of Micah. But, and that little conjunction there now is a turnabout, right about face. This is the other side of the coin. But thou, Bethlehem, in spite of what happened to Zedekiah and his line, the Davidic line was already in captivity. They became peasants. And now there is coming the Messiah. And where is he coming from? But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, this is the part of the Christmas story, and it seems a very inappropriate time for a Christmas message, does it not? But we're going to have one. That is, we're certainly going to be able to sing O Little Town of Bethlehem, and it seems very inappropriate that we've come to it, but we have. It's sort of like wearing a straw hat in a snowstorm in Chicago in January or wearing an overcoat in August in Houston, Texas. It's just out of place. Or it's like wearing a bikini at the North Pole in February. Or it may be like wearing a bear skin down at the equator any time of the year. Well, may I say to you that this is something that probably is a little out of form, but the Bible doesn't frown upon it because here's where we've come and here's what the Word of God has to say. And I think probably we could make a correction here without being an extremist. Actually, Christ was not born on December the 25th. I'm sure we can be almost sure of that. They try to identify it with the winter solstice is the way that it got into the calendar. But I'm not sure that that is it. He probably was born in the spring, because in December the shepherds would not be out on the hillside with their sheep. They would be in those caves along that entire area. And actually, whatever date 
that you are listening to it, we're nearer the date of his birth than we are in December the 25th. But we don't want to split hairs about that. I personally think that this is a good time to look at the Christmas story. Christmas, I think, needs to be stripped of all of its heathenism and the accretions of time have added the accessories of paganism to it. And probably we're prepared to look at the birth of Christ without bells and bunning and tinsel and the tawdry, the crowds and the clamor, and actually a Christmas without a Santa Claus. Well, Micah, you will remember, was a contemporary of Isaiah. And we have seen there have been many parallel passages. Someone has said Micah's an abridged edition of Isaiah. And among these very wonderful prophetic passages is this reference to the birthplace of Christ. And it's almost a casual reference, but the emphasis is put in the New Testament. It's remarkable that after this prophecy was given, that 700 years later it would come to pass. Now, very frankly, it's not that Bethlehem was chosen to be his birthplace. That would be normal. It was the birthplace of David. It was his place. It was where the family of David originated. So you might expect that the Messiah would be born there. But the thing that makes it remarkable is that under the circumstances, with what happened in verse 1, Zedekiah, with his eyes put out, carried into Babylonian captivity, and already the family of David is down there in captivity and slavery. Now, how in the world will there be one born in the line of David to sit on the throne? Well, he says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Now, the thing that makes Bethlehem very interesting is this, that though it is the hometown of David, the proper place for a king to be born, and most of David's line were born in Jerusalem. That was the capital city. But this one is to be born in Bethlehem, David's city, if you please. How in the world could that come to pass? And Matthew puts together four prophecies that are totally unrelated. He's to be born in Bethlehem. That seemed out of context because that was to be weeping in Ramah, and Ramah's north of Bethlehem, and he's to be called out of Egypt. And how in the world will he get down to Egypt to be called out of Egypt? And he's to be called a Nazarene, evidently because of the manner of life he lived. But he'd have to get that name by living in Nazareth at this time. So how in the world can you put all that together? Well, Matthew tells the story without any strain on circumstances. All of these things came together normally and naturally. But let me change that and say supernaturally. God was overruling. Now, Bethlehem just wasn't the place. But though it be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that's to be ruler in Israel. Now, the one that he promised to David, 
and the one that the prophets took up as the theme song of the Old Testament, that there's coming one in the line of David to sit upon the throne of David, and that he would do certain things for this earth that no one else could do. And we're going to have to see that later on in this chapter. But will you notice, he says, "...yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that's to be ruler in Israel." Now, this is the strange language. Listen to this. "...whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting." He's to come out of Bethlehem, a little, may I say it without being irreverent, a little jerkwater town, a whistle stop south of Jerusalem. Some say six miles, some ten. I personally think that six miles is probably nearer, more accurate. But out of Bethlehem, he's to come But notice who it is. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, this is to be a remarkable baby. Now, the contemporary of Michael was Isaiah. Isaiah clarifies this. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. And then he had something more to say about this one, by the way. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And by the way, we always abuse that at Christmas time. We think us means the United States. U.S. is United States. Unto us a child is born. That's not the way Isaiah is speaking. He didn't even have the United States in mind. Didn't even know about it and didn't know about us. And the ones he's talking about is unto us, the nation Israel. A child is born. Now, the child is born. That's his humanity. But unto us, a son is given. He's not born. Why? Because he is the one that comes out of eternity. He is the one from all eternity. May I say that the psalmist had something to say along this line of who he was. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. (laughs) From everlasting. And the Hebrews, very vivid, from the vanishing point in the past, To the vanishing point in the future, thou art God. Just as far back as you can go, and you can't go any farther in your thinking, well, he's God. He'll come out of eternity to meet you. And as far as you want to go into eternity. So, what Micah's saying here is of tremendous significance. He says he's born in Bethlehem about 1,900 years ago now. But his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Who is he? Well, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That doesn't end it, friends. We have more on this over in the 8th chapter of Proverbs. And you'll recall that when we were looking at 
both the passage in Psalms and Proverbs, we called attention to this. He says here, verse 23 of Proverbs 8, I was set up from everlasting. Now, actually, the word set up is anointed. I was anointed from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth when there was no fountains abounding with water. Before any creation, he's God. Yet into creation, he came to a little out-of-the-way place, a little town called Bethlehem. And you might get it mixed up with another Bethlehem that was farther north, and he identifies this one, Bethlehem Ephratah, David's city, where David was born. But he's to come out of this place... But his goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. Now, may I say, therefore, this becomes extremely important when you begin to move over into the New Testament. And actually, I come back to the date again, that the December date is highly unlikely because there's been the juggling of the calendar at intervals to begin with. Dionysus in 532 A.D. set up a calendar, which is a reasonable facsimile of the one we have today. And even he miscued on the number of days in the year, and that's the reason we get a leap year in every now and then, and he tried to rectify that. That is, others tried to rectify that in 1752 and jumped the calendar ahead 11 days. And George Washington was not born on February the 22nd. Actually, he's born on the 11th. And you cannot be sure Jesus was born on December the 25th, even if all the other circumstances would fit into it. And this idea today of saying, I believe in observing the Sabbath day, how do you know which is the Sabbath day, by the way? But actually, it's not important. The time of the year is immaterial. The place is all important. He was born in Bethlehem, and that's the historical fact, and it has been authenticated by history. Micah picked the place 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it's not remarkable that he'd choose Bethlehem. The miraculous feature is that 700 years later, after the giving of the prophecy, with so many intervening events, there was little likelihood that one in the line of David could be born there. It's entirely out of the question. The odds were against it. None of the family of David were living any longer in Bethlehem. They were scattered. The dispersion had driven them from the land. And now one family's up yonder in Nazareth. Yet Bethlehem must be the place, according to Micah, and that was the sole basis of this prophecy, that the wise men were directed by the scribes to Bethlehem. They quoted from Micah because they believed that that would be the place. They just didn't believe it was being fulfilled at that time. Now, I want to come back and cover some ground that I did not cover before. But the place that Jesus is to be born is Bethlehem. And we look back at it as history, but it probably looked rather dark and dreary 
to those who went into Babylonian captivity, it'd be possible now for the Messiah to come. And so Micah, speaking into that picture, says, yes, he'll be born in Bethlehem. That is the place. There's nothing unusual about that. But the very fact that he was born there, the the circumstances which led up to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, they're familiar to us. But very frankly, it's remarkable that considering what had happened over the intervening years from the time of the Babylonian captivity for 500 years, how could it be possible for one to be born? Well, if that little donkey on which Mary rode down from Nazareth to Bethlehem had stumbled and Mary had fallen, Jesus would probably have been born somewhere along the route. But I say this very carefully, that little donkey could not stumble. In fact, that was the safest mode of travel that's imaginable because that little donkey could not stumble. And I hope that doesn't lead anyone to take a fanatic viewpoint as one man came to me. He knows my reluctance at flying by plane. I do it. I've flown actually equal to around the world several times, but I still am never comfortable, as I've said before. I've never put my full weight down on any plane yet. And this brother came to me and he said, now, I don't want you to worry about this flight I was making to London, from here to London. He said, I don't want you to worry because as I've prayed and I want you to know that the Lord has shown me that the jet cannot fall. Well, may I say to you, I dismiss that because that's pious nonsense. He didn't know it, and I didn't know it. And it didn't fall, thank the Lord for that. But this is different. The Lord Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem according to prophecy. And the donkey on which Mary was riding was safe. And he had to arrive on schedule. In fact, it was split second. And it was timed from eternity. It was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law, born under the law. It was more punctual and precise than any jet plane could possibly be today. And now, as we saw, Micah says two things. Out of these shall he come forth, little humble Bethlehem. This is his birth, the incarnation. has to do with his humanity. He clothed himself with humanity in Bethlehem. And it also says, whose goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting and his existence was before his birth. And this is the pre-incarnation that we're talking about, the deity of Christ. And we have already looked at the fact that a child is born. That is what Isaiah said. That's Bethlehem. A son is given, and that's from heaven. And the Lord Jesus said, I have come forth from the Father And I'm coming to the world again. I leave the world and I go to the Father. Now notice the pre-incarnation, the deity of Christ. His goings forth are from of old. He's the everlasting Father. He told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. 
And he appeared many times in the Old Testament. And go back to the creation. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator. For by him were all things made, created. Colossians 1:16. And in the Garden of Eden, he was the voice of the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was the articulation of God. He was the Word of God. He was the communication to man from God. And you find him in pursuit of man through the Old Testament. He peered to Moses at the burning bush and said, I've come down to deliver you. He was a redeemer. And we have, therefore, the fact he was from everlasting to everlasting. But he came to Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem, as it is said of the little baby, where did you come from, baby dear? Out of the everywhere into the here. Well, this little baby came out of the everywhere, out of the everlasting into the here. But you can't say that of your baby of mine. Now, as to his humanity, his incarnation, out of thee shall he come forth. And when God came to Bethlehem, he got something he never had before. He got the name of Jesus, and he received humanity. He was Jehovah. That's the name of deity. But he's Jesus now, and he's a Savior. He came out of Bethlehem to save. Remember, the angel said to the shepherds, There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. Matthew says his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. But you're going to call his name Jesus. And he can't be Jesus unless he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. He must be a man to take our place, to be our representative, to die a substitutionary death. And maybe this far away from Christmas without all of the jingle bells and the ho, 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 of Santa Claus, we can get a viewpoint of him that we couldn't get because we were so busy Christmas shopping. Jesus did not come to shop. He came to save. And there are those that are trying to take Christ out of Christmas. And it looks like the Lord's been taking Christmas out of mankind today. The world didn't do so well this past Christmas. My friend, may I say to you that this is a very wonderful verse here, and I've merely stayed on the surface of it. Now we begin to move out, and as we move out here, we come to an interval that takes place between the time he was born or the time of his rejection until he returns as the king to rule on this earth. And now I'm reading verse 3. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she who travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And I think this is a very marvelous verse. Someone says it still has reference to the birth of Christ. It's true that it speaks here of the fact that Mary travailed. But you can't read this passage without realizing that it's also talking about the nation Israel. And it 
speaks of the fact of their worldwide dispersion, and they were scattered by the judgment of God, but they are to be regathered. But before they're regathered, the nation is to travail. And that travail is the great tribulation period that they'll go through, because we're told here that she who travaileth hath brought forth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. Verse 4, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And he's depicted here as the shepherd that feeds them. You see, he's the shepherd to the church, and he's also the shepherd to the nation Israel. And he is the one, by the way, that is to bring to this earth the thing that this world needs. And you talk about a Christmas gift when he comes to this earth. He's going to bring a Christmas gift. And here from verse 4, we find that he's the shepherd, the one that was rejected, the one that was born in Bethlehem. And he's going to feed his flock. And I can't think of anything that sets him forth so wonderfully as the fact that he's the shepherd of his flock. Remember, he said that he had other sheep, which are not of this flock, but of this fold. And it speaks of his care, his protection, and of his salvation. Actually, he is the good shepherd that lay down his life for the sheep at Psalm 22. And he is the great shepherd that keeps his sheep today. That's Psalm 23. And he's the chief shepherd that's coming someday. And his entire ministry is set forth under the office of a shepherd. And God's rulers have all been men that were trained as shepherds. That is, the great ones. You take, for instance, Moses. Moses was a shepherd before God made him the shepherd of his people. David was a shepherd boy, became the great king that he was. Now, what is it that he's going to bring as the great Christmas gift? Well, we'll have to keep reading here. Verse 5, And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now, there are several things here I think that we should note. I think the Assyrian, as we found it in Isaiah, sets forth the enemy that's coming in the last days. And I probably should use the plural instead of singular. The enemies that will come up against them is set forth by the Assyrian. He was so brutal, and he did take the northern kingdom into captivity. And it says he'll raise up seven shepherds and eight principal men. I don't care about going into mathematics, but it is quite interesting that you find as you get into the Word of God, the emphasis that is sometimes put on the numbers in Scripture, and especially these two numbers you have, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, in verse 16 of chapter 6. It says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination 
unto him. And that is, I think, quite interesting how that is developed. And we find that also used again in Ecclesiastes. And it denotes actually the fullness of the fact that God is going to deliver them in a full deliverance. I should turn to Ecclesiastes 11, 2, and look at that for a moment. He says, Give a portion to seven, and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. In other words, that denotes God makes adequate provision. And I think that that is the thought that is suggested here. that when the enemy comes down, God will be ready to take care of his own. Now will you notice verse 6, And they shall waste the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances of it. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, and when he treadeth within our borders. Now this looks ahead, as you can see, to the one who is the shepherd, the one born in Bethlehem. He came before in humility. And we need to note that, that it said he humbled himself. We don't do that. Sometimes other people humble us. But he humbled himself. And there was an emptying on the part of Christ. It says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Not of his deity. That little baby reclining so helpless on the bosom of Mary could have spoken this universe out of existence. He's God of very God, and he's man of very man. But he limited himself, and that was a self-limitation. It's that which he took willingly. We do not limit ourselves willingly. In fact, we extend ourselves. We are aggressive. We want to win. We want to be on top. Man is self-assertive. He's self-centered. He's selfish. But This one is the shepherd. He came to Bethlehem. That wasn't a royal city. That wasn't the capital. He's born in a stable. That's no place for a king to be born. He came, though, and humbled himself. And he came that way. And he's the shepherd. He came as a shepherd to die for his sheep. came as a shepherd today to watch over his sheep. And he's coming again as the chief shepherd but this time in might and power and glory. Now, we have here in verse 7, as you can see, he's going to defend his own. He's going to protect them. And now in verse 7, and the remnant of Jacob, and I've already talked about the remnant before, and the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people like dew from the Lord, like the showers upon the grass, that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of man. You see that he's going to also not only protect them, but going to be a blessing to them and bring strength to them. Listen at verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many people, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. 
Well, Israel is certainly not that today. Israel has been in a precarious position now for many years. But God says, I'm going to make you the head of the nations, not the tail of the nations. And that's where they are today. They're at the wrong end, by the way. And now verse 9, Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Now, he's going here to give them victory over their enemies. Now he says in verse 10, And it shall come to pass in that day. Now, just in case some amillennialists drop back and is applying this to something else, Michael wants you to know it's in that day. And that day looks forward to the future. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. I'll cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. Why will he do that? Well, because... They won't need these instruments of war anymore. He's bringing peace to this earth. Verse 12, And I'll cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. I wish I had time to develop that, but we'll be back to that later on. And he's going to get rid of idolatry, false religion. Verse 13, Thy carved images also will I cut off and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. They're going to worship now the living God. And I will pluck up thine idols out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the nations such as they have not heard. We're definitely now talking about the great tribulation period that is coming. And this is the blessing that will come to this nation under the Messiah and then those others, and it's only the remnant, understand, and then the remnant out of the other nations of the world that turn to it. This is a very glorious chapter, as you've seen. Next time we begin with chapter 6, until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.